This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Hello and as always, welcome to another Total Saints podcast. This is episode 33, putting us within touching distance of the magical 36 or 37 episodes needed to secure podcast safety for another season. As always, I'm joined by the chief sports writer at the Southern Daily Echo and the man who gets to spend his week in and around Southampton Football Club. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, we'll leave that open to uh, other people's suggestions. But Adam Leach is on the, uh, the line as well. Adam, we all good? Football aside? Yeah, yeah, not too bad, mate. Not too bad. Had a bit of a disaster this weekend, as you uh, as you will know. The my laptop died, which is not ideal when you uh, when you work at the weekend. And obviously, as you can imagine, IT support at the weekend is uh, sketchy at least. So yeah, I yeah. am in full on improvisation mode at the moment. Yeah, good. I believe in the high tech generation. You're doing this via iPad. Is that correct? The miracle of uh, technology. Wow. Yes, wow. Um, I amazing, isn't it? I mean, I. I, I like you. I mean, neither of us are exactly um, brilliant with technology. I know, as uh, but somehow I've got this to work. So I'm, yeah. I'm feeling quite quite pleased with myself right now. It's good. It's amazing how far the podcast has come since the start of the season, technology-wise, <laughs> isn't it? So uh, there we go. There we go. No good stuff. And and uh, I mean, before we get cracking, uh, another day watching Saints, and even as a, a fairly neutral journalist, going through every single emotion once again. I imagine. Oh, well, yes, the hilarity of the broken laptop now over. We talk about the football. Um, <laughs> and uh, From one, yeah, one implosion well, to another, eh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yesterday, uh, Saturday was just like, by the end of the day, I was like, this day you can just do one. I got a cold, uh, the laptop <laughs> died, and then, um, you know, you, you think, oh, OK, we are going to be covering Premier League football next year. And then eight minutes later, after thinking that, uh, oh, maybe not. So, uh, and yeah, I mean, just the mood, uh, the atmosphere, the the dejection, I think. Um, and by the time I left the stadium uh, yesterday, late afternoon, I was driving home and I was just literally pulling in uh, as it got to 90 minutes in all the games, got out of the car, all the scores were as they were, came in the door, 
and uh, thought, oh, a bit later on, oh, I'll just flick on and see what the score was and saw Huddersfield's uh, injury time winner. Mm. I thought, well, that just about capped off the day, really. Didn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> All no. things considered. <laughs> there we go. So, well, yeah, as you, as you mentioned, another desperately disappointing weekend for Saints. Uh, I think the end is nigh, folks. The end is nigh. But before we get there, we're uh, going to try our best, as we always do, to try and bring some form of... Uh, well, I don't really know what to call it anymore, Adam, but we'll bring something to the podcast, I'm sure. Um, we're we're going to have a chat about Chelsea this week and Chelsea next week at Wembley in the FA Cup semi-final as well. Um, we're also going to have a, a quick discussion around Matty Target, uh, Leicester City, and uh, I want to end the podcast on a high, so we're going to have a very quick chat about Ricky Lambert and the uh, award that he's going to pick up this weekend as part of the EFL Awards do. Um, alongside that, we'll also hear from Chelsea fan Gary Hayes on his hopes and expectations for Wembley next weekend. This is Total Saints Podcast, Episode 33. Remember that Aston Villa game, the one that Tiff Nadell spoke about in uh, the Christmas special 2005? We were 2-0 up and eventually lost 3-2. Just before we got relegated, well, we're recording on April the 15th. That game was on April the 16th, 2005, so almost exactly 13 years to the day. Um, the crowd, Adam, was about the same, 162 less than it was yesterday at 31,764. If all that isn't weird and coincidental, do you know that Giroud's first goal yesterday was scored on 17 minutes, the same as one of the Villa goals on that day, Norberto Solano in 2005? That game, Adam, we let two goals in in two minutes. Yesterday, we let uh, three goals in in eight minutes. So, um, ironically, two of those goals in 2005 were 70 and 72. Yesterday was 70, 75 and 78. Now, don't ever tell me I don't do my research for this podcast, eh? The similarities between that 2005 season and this season have been unparalleled throughout. Unfortunately, we also know who won the Champions League that year, so I can't wait for that to happen as well, just to cap it all. Um, But there we go. The above only goes to sort of strengthen that uh, parallel between the two seasons, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, we've talked about it quite a few times, haven't we, about how uncanny some of the uh, the comparisons between the two seasons are. And, and funnily enough, it, it hadn't gone uh, unnoticed um, on me yesterday, and I actually um, was writing my report based on the, the Villa thing, and I was thinking about it as well. I, I'm not in as much depth as you have, obviously. <laughs> obviously. I mean... Uh, yeah, you've uh, you've really crunched the numbers there. Uh, I didn't go. I didn't look at the attendances. I must admit, compared them. Yeah. But nonetheless, I like to cover all the bases. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. But the the point is the same. In in that, um, it's a hammer blow. Uh, weirdly, uh, yesterday I, I was thinking last night. Uh, in fact, I was texting a friend and said, uh, I said, well, you know, it could have been worse. I suppose they could have lost five nil to Chelsea. And then I, the more I reflected on it, I thought. Actually, I think that would have been better than what happened, as, as mad as that sounds. It was just such a crushing, crushing moment, uh, mm. 10 minutes, 8 minutes, whatever it was. Um, just so demoralising, so dispiriting. And uh, in truth, we don't obviously know, as we record, how they'll react to it. But you, you've got to be honest and say something that's very, very hard to get over. Very hard to get over uh, mentally, to pull yourself uh, back to the kind of almost being able to see safety again at that moment and thinking, well, we might just be all right to then collapse in such a spectacular fashion. Uh, just gut-wrenching, I think, is the word I, I would use. Um, and very, very difficult to, to get over. And it, we saw the same as, uh, in 2005 as well. Um, when confidence is gone, when belief is just shot, um, which... 
I mean, we we saw it in 05 and we're seeing it again now. Um, the way that they uh, the team reacted against Chelsea after conceding that first goal was a clear indication of, of where they are at mentally. So when you take another colossal blow, you know, a massive right hook that basically puts you on the canvas, um, you've got five games to get up. But ca- can you actually get up? Can you really dust yourself off? Are your legs going to recover or are you going to be wobbling around just waiting for the next punch to uh, to end it? And that's, I think... Um, the fear and we'll see with the reaction because you never quite know and, and football's a funny game and, and unpredictable but um, yeah I mean it's uh, I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about the fixtures they've got coming up and where this has left them in the overall context of the relegation fight but leaving aside the individual matches just from a mental point of view uh, and a confidence point of view it's just an absolute body blow. I think it, even as the uh, the most positive of Saints fans, and I, I have this reputation for not necessarily being one of those, as we all know, but uh, I think the, the hard thing was, even when we went 2-0 up, you know, you kept looking at the clock, and the clock seemed to be going backwards at some points, and uh, and, and you, could, you could still see these, this, this thing happening with Saints. And, I mean, it's a fine line between, you know, every week, I mean, there's almost been a fine line between heartbreaking and embarrassing, really, hasn't it? I mean, yesterday, you know, live international television to collapse like that and just as you say I mean it wasn't a case necessarily of throwing the towel and it was just no one really having the, the sort of strength and the leadership as we discussed numerous times to sort of grab each other by the, the neck when the first goal went in and start game management and all that sort of thing it, it was just it was just a compounding sort of summary of our season yeah and uh, I don't really know how you get over it I think that's the bigger issue uh, I totally agree it did seem like um, a summary of the season funnily enough I said to a person I was sat with yesterday at 2-0, we were both just looking at each other going, I'm still still not quite confident. They, they need to make sure they don't concede yep. until about 80 minutes. And, and if they can get to 80 minutes and if they let one in, yes, we know it will be a nervy finish, but OK, they might just have the fortitude to see it out. As soon as the first, that first goal went in, the two of us uh, looked at each other and were basically went, uh-oh. And sure enough, I couldn't quite believe the reaction um, to the first goal because it, it almost almost seemed inevitable the second was going to come. And, and given, I think what's really demoralising is obviously we've seen a couple of improved performances, Arsenal and Chelsea, and we've taken had to take into account we've, the, the Saints played Arsenal's kind of second string. They played a Chelsea team who, let's be frank, I mean, their first half performance was absolutely abysmal. I've been, yeah. I've been absolutely furious if I was a Chelsea fan to watch. Yeah. They, but they barely broke sweat. They didn't look like they cared. I mean, they, they mm. just literally looked like they were just going to roll over and they, they didn't care. And in fact, to be honest with you, they didn't look any different until that goal went in. It wasn't as if they were really, really exerting a lot of pressure and then the goal came. The goal came out of nowhere, and then they thought, oh, well, you know, perhaps we better try and see if we can get a second, and, and were just completely invited on by Saints, basically, who retreated, gave up all possession, and just looked looked so, so nervy. And I don't know, that really, unfortunately, that you can make the excuse of, well, you know, they were playing Giroud, Hazard, etc., etc. I think that would have been the case no matter what team they were playing. It's just that Chelsea have obviously got the quality when they get chances to make the most of them yeah and uh, speaking of Olivier Giroud I think that's about his uh, 150th goal against us in about 15 games well, I think I mean, I, um, he scored more goals at Northern End this season than half our team I think most well, of our team yeah and um, I, I feel like I, I just to 
justify my place on this podcast, I have to point out that <laughs> I uh, I did obviously talk at length about Giroud last week, and, and I said if if Conte's done his homework, he absolutely will start Giroud because I think he'll be a nightmare for Saints. And so I must admit I was somewhat surprised when Giroud started on the bench, uh, but pleased from Saints' point of view. And when he came on, to be honest, they, they were playing so poorly, Chelsea. You just thought, well... He's going to be a threat to Saints, you know that, because of the style of player that he is. But what service is he going to get? Because he didn't look like he was going to get any service. And yet, you know, you come away and you're just, just literally just shaking your head. And I think after the game, I think Mark Hughes was the same. I think it was, you know, wow, what, is, what just happened? Just a, a whirlwind um, that, as you said, quite rightly, kind of encapsulates the season in some ways. And um, just nobody able to get a, a grip of the game and and he talked a bit about um if i'm going to paraphrase him because he didn't use these words but potentially being a bit more cynical you know game management whatever you want to call yep. it things like that but the problem is that requires an element of confidence i think an element of belief and in what you're doing and uh it also requires a clear head and that means confidence and belief and not feeling constantly under immense pressure uh, and I think that's how Saints feel now. And, and how how is that going to change? The only way that changes, oddly, perhaps, is should they lose against Leicester, for example, and basically it looks like that's it, or more or less, they're down. Maybe then, when there's no pressure, they'll perform. Because oddly, that's we talked about it last week as well, when I, I made the, the point that um, against the top 10 teams, they've, they've only... Uh, they've got a few draws and they've only ever lost by one goal, which obviously continued against Chelsea. That's now 11 matches against top 10 teams. They've not lost by more than one goal. Uh, top six teams, I beg your pardon. So it goes to show that when they're the underdogs, when there's no expectation, when there's not really a lot of pressure on them, they seem to perform. It's those games when there's been a lot of pressure on them because they've been playing lesser lights and they've been expected to win. They've really struggled. Yesterday... They they were doing well when there wasn't much pressure on them. When the pressure came on them, they capitulated. So for all the talk of, you know, perhaps they could do this, perhaps they could do that, how do you get them to that stage now, having having had this blow on top of all the other blows, whereby they're going to be able to think with, you know, such great clarity and clear heads in high-pressure moments and, and in repeated games as well. It's not just going to be a one-off game now. You know, all right, they might go and have a great performance and beat Leicester, but... That's not enough now. That's that's just that's just one step along the road. Um, they're going to have to do it several times, and it's really really difficult. May 2016, they uh, flashed up a, a stat on the television actually that said uh, Saints had played. That was their 23rd game against the top six sides um, since May 2016, Adam. And that's now yeah five draws, 18 defeats, zero wins. Um, obviously, at the time they flashed it up, of course we were two 0 up. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that just sort of reiterates that whilst we have performed well against them. We haven't really picked up many points, and uh, you know we do generally come away from those games with nothing. Um, look, I was, I was going to start with some positives, but bearing in mind we've built some good momentum there on uh, some uh, sort of negative stuff, and we can can end with positives for this section in, instead. Um, game management was something I was going to comment on because you're, you're right. I mean, it does sort of need leaders. It does need clear consciences, but. At two 0 I mean, trying to win free kicks, trying to sort of you know get out, go down with injuries, a bit of time wasting, all those sort of things. We, we've spoken a lot about leadership this season, and I think it was you know whilst Chelsea were obviously having a good bit of momentum there, and it was quite evident that uh, we we had dropped deeper and deeper. You know, these guys are professionals. I mean, quite a lot of them are experienced internationals. 
I think that was probably the frustrating thing for me is even at sort of 2-1, 2 all, we didn't try to stop the momentum of the game. We just let things sort of snowball. And by the time that, you know, we were sort of 3-2 down, everyone was shell-shocked and there was evidently going to be no way back. But that leadership, I know we sort of dwell on it every week, but it's it's not just about being leaders in terms of captain and being noisy and, and those sort of things. It really is a, a sort of plethora of things you need to do as a leader that Saints seem to be lacking. Yeah, and uh, and lacking collectively as well. Um, obviously, the big individuals are very, very important, clearly, but lacking collectively that, yeah, I, I think it. I, I just trace it all back to being confidence-based because I don't believe that these guys don't know how to uh, see out games and the way to go about running down the clock and things like that. I just think that when you're in those moments, you're under such intense pressure that you need uh, a very uh, to have clarity of thought in those moments is very very difficult anyway and um, certainly you need to have a firm belief in exactly what you're doing and what everybody around you is doing in order to execute that and saints do not have that because they are absolutely like as i said they're on the floor they've conceded three goals in each of their last four premier league games confidence mm is at the lowest ebb possible. Uh, they are getting cut adrift in the relegation zone. They've just thrown away a two-goal lead in the space of eight minutes. I mean, mm-hmm. there there is no reason for them to have any confidence or belief or clear heads. And that is the problem, that there's no reason for them to, and they don't. And I think you almost get to the point where you stop uh, even... I, I do anyway. I find it very hard to single out individuals and to talk uh, about that because it's such a collective problem that they've got, and it's really hard to turn around. And it's you know it's easy to say you need to stand up and be counted. You need to do that, and because I'm sure I'm sure that the majority of those guys are coming into work every day, are thinking so hard about how they're going to do it visualizing what they're going to do on the pitch and how they're going to grab this moment by the scruff of the neck but when it unravels it just goes in a flash and it's gone and and that's what happened yesterday and i think that's the problem you turning that around is something that only comes with time with results with a period when you don't have the pressure to deal with potentially with getting rid of some of those players we saw it last time around when they're relegated those scars cut very, very deep and some players don't really recover from it. Or if they do, they need to go somewhere else to recover from it. And that's not an option now. But right now, that's not an option. So how do you turn it around with five Premier League games to go? You know, Mark Hughes is a good manager. He's got a good record. He's got a lot of experience. He knows how to handle big players. He's, he's done it for years and years and years and years and years. And he hasn't been able to get a grip of this even though a lot of these problems are, are, are recurring. And so where does this change from? I, I don't know. And I, I I find it difficult to really come up with an answer as to what can they do? Because uh, you start to think collectively, well, what can they do? Uh, you don't want to sound too defeatist about it, but I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty obvious to see what the problems are. Not necessarily going through them one by one, but in terms of the three goals we gave away. Chelsea took a quick free kick for the first one. Of course, it went to Marcus Alonso to cross the ball in. Saints were caught napping Giroud header. The second goal, fair enough, it was probably a good move. But even then, you get Eden Hazard unmarked 
eight yards out. The third goal, I mean, that's probably the one that annoyed me the most, and I think probably many Saints fans. You've got a two-man wall for a free kick that are doing nothing. You've got Eden Hazard on the edge of the area, on the corner of the area, totally unmarked, and the ball went to him. I mean, I I was literally staring at it, thinking sooner or later someone is going to realise that he's there, jog out and stand next to him. No one did it. The goal came for that free kick. I mean, it's just defensively, as you say, we've let 12 goals in in the last three games. Alex McCarthy, I don't think necessarily, other than maybe the third goal at Chelsea where he could have come for the cross, has had any fault on him. So, again, collectively, defensively, it's just been an absolute shambles. And those three goals, particularly the third one for me, just, again, summed it up. Yeah, well, I can't really argue. I mean, it's the, the weird thing about the last two games is that defensively, uh, as, a, as a collective... Actually, a lot of the time, Saints haven't done that badly, have they? Let's be honest. They've actually they've looked quite solid most of the time, but they just have these moments and their errors. When you're in this position, your errors cost you, and that that's just what's happening. They just have these individual or collective little laps for a second, and they're conceding goals. Um, they're obviously playing at a very high level where you don't uh, get away with much against top quality opponents, and it seems weird that collectively, you you for the majority of the game, if you look at the last two games, Arsenal and Chelsea, you feel like defensively they've been more solid, and yeah, with Hughes, and yet they've shipped three goals, and it's just been some horrific momentary lapses. Um, but again, I, I say again, it feeds into this whole narrative of what I'm talking about that that is very hard to change once that is so ingrained that this is what's going on. It's so hard to change that. It's so hard but, to get away from the expectation that that's going to happen. But that's, I mean, that's, you know, under 10's defender. I mean, you know he is their best player. Um, you know he is their goal threat. You know he is the creative mastermind. I mean, that is just, you know, leaving someone like him on the corner of the box, unmarked. I mean, it's just, I, I totally agree with everything you said. But for me, you know, that professional level of football, I mean, you don't, you don't do that. It's just basic defending, having someone on a player like him, wherever he is on the pitch almost. Well, I mean, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. That I'm not trying to defend the defending, as it were. Yeah, uh, all, yeah. all I'm trying to do is offer, you know, potentially an explanation as to why it's got to that stage. Because Saints are, are not a team with uh, inexperienced players. They know what they, sh- they kind of should be doing. And that's why I'm trying to come up with, you know, possible oh, no, theories and exp- yeah. explanations as to why this is happening. And I think... Appreciate that. Uh, but... But the the thing is, when you look, I'm just trying to say constructively, I then look at it and think, well, what do you do to turn this around? What can you possibly do? And that's where I'm stumped. Yeah, yeah. All right, and just, just um, again, finishing up on the negatives, I was going to do separately. We might as well do them as a, as a one. Uh, Mike Dean, Marcus Alonso. Um, I don't necessarily need you to give your opinion on uh, what you thought of Mike Dean's performance, uh, Adam, because I'm sure like 99.9% of the uh, the people that were watching, I think we can all agree on that. But just in, in terms of the Marcus Alonso challenge, I mean, the, the cynic in me says that nothing will happen because he's one of the, the, the big boys in terms of the top six. I mean, the reality is probably that I don't expect to see him playing at Wembley next week. But the, the tackle itself, I mean, if you can call it that, probably more of a lunge. I mean, it was pretty disgusting, you know, very much could have could have been a, a potential career ender for Shane Long, really, the way that he did that. Alonso's tackle, call it that, Mike Dean's performance overall, the, the two events and the fact that he was staring straight at it. Again, it almost summed up Saints' season that someone could get away with that and uh, and then obviously go on to create the, the first and third goals. But what did you make of that particular situation? Because it was pretty distasteful, I think, for many. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, 
I mean, the pictures spoke for themselves, didn't they? Really, um, it was it was really bad. And what I didn't really fully appreciate until I saw the replay was how good a view Mike Dean had of it, which was what was really strange. Is that my first instinct was that uh, when I saw the reaction from the Saints bench, oh, this must be a bad one because you know they just leapt up like you know you, you wouldn't be faking that kind of reaction. And yeah. um, but I thought, well, just just from where I was, because I was looking right into it so I had a bad view even though I was kind of level with the incident if that makes sense Shane Long was facing my way effectively I just thought oh there's obviously a body of players it happened quickly and I thought I bet Mike Dean's been unsighted here because I could I the fourth official was like well the fourth official and the assistant referee you know they could it sounds bad but they could easily be having other distractions given how near they are to the dugout given that there were a few challenges flying in around the ball at that point and they were looking in as well. And obviously it was on the back of his leg. So it might have been harder for them to spot. And I just thought, well, Mike Dean's the other side of this. So he's got the view. Uh, I, I bet he's been obstructed by by another player. And then when I saw the replay and saw his positioning, it was a sh- extraordinary that he missed it. Um, yeah. Because he seemed to, to have got himself into the perfect position to see it. So quite how he missed it, I don't know. Like you, I don't expect that Alonso will be available to play against Saints at Wembley. I'm sure he'll get a charge and a, and a ban for that. But obviously, yep. that's um, that's small comfort, isn't it, really? Because yeah, yeah. Saints Saints would have, you know, how dispirited would Chelsea have be had they been down to 10 men, given the, the fact yeah. that they didn't really look that much like they could be bothered anyway um, yeah. for, for the majority of the game. And uh, again, you, you know, those scenarios, I mean, you look at Michael Oliver in uh, the Bernabeu, made a very, very brave call during the week, probably the right one, I think, in, in terms of sending Buffon uh, off as well when he was right in his face. But again, it's like one of those scenarios where all, almost all the officials seem to be waiting for one of the other ones to sort of say, oh, I think that's a red card, you know, when really the, the emphasis should be on the referee with a clear view like that. I mean, the frustration again for Saints is that, James Ward-Prowse then got booked for almost retaliating because he knew what had happened and was frustrated by that scenario. So it's, it's this consistency that we talk about within officiating that uh, I think annoys most fans and certainly not blaming Mike Dean for, for the, the way we collapsed in the second half. But it's just a sort of culmination of events that make you feel very hard done by as a fan sometimes. Yeah, a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> almost as bad as the laptop. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. OK, well, let, let's move on to something positive then. And um, Jan Bednarek, first Premier League game. I know we spoke last week and you weren't 100% sure whether he would play. Obviously, I know you wrote a piece in the Echo during the week saying that it was likely that uh, it would happen. So it did. Scored his first goal. I I thought actually defended pretty well for the whole game, Adam. But what did you make of his performance being thrown in like that? Yeah, I thought it was a real positive for for Saints. Uh, It was obviously going to be a very big ask for him. But then, then again, you've got a player there. He's got a lot of experience as well. He's a Polish international. Even though he's young, he, he is experienced. He's played a lot of games uh, at a decent level as well in Poland. So it's not uh, a big day for him, but not like you're throwing in a, an inexperienced kid as such. So, uh, yeah, uh, he, he obviously, the question was, could he handle that kind of occasion? And he could. And what we saw was a performance from somebody going back to my earlier points, who obviously, because he hasn't played, isn't as scarred by what's happened this season as some of his teammates uh, obviously are. And I think that that kind of showed um, there was a lot more, sort of, it felt like a more positive performance from him. At times, his defending was safety first and cautious, but it was solid. And that's what, you know, what Saints wanted. Obviously, he popped up with a, 
goal as well, which was great. Uh, so yeah, I think I think a real positive uh, for Saints, and obviously gives Hughes the option to stick with the back five if he wants, which is um, good news for him. I think we've been conscious that uh, quite often this this season that the back, particularly Wesley Hoyt, have been overplaying in defence and quite often it's led to goals so there's nothing wrong with uh, sort of uh, plan A defending sometimes or just sticking it in the stand so yeah I, I thought he did well and obviously he took his goal well and I guess again if you think about sort of worst case scenarios if we do go down potentially someone that you could see having a, a good career at centre back with Saints in the championship if other players move on yeah absolutely I mean it's uh, it's a bit grim that we're already getting to that point where we're speculating on who who might stay and who might go if they get relegated. But I suppose it's inevitable given the position the club are in. And yeah, he's one of those that you would think uh, would stay and would probably become a first choice. So yeah, that's a good thing. Um, and, and, and just finally, I mean, on the match itself, I think most fans were very encouraged by the fact that Saints clearly put a lot of effort and fight in, particularly for the first 70 minutes. I mean, you, you think of Shane Long, the poor guy can probably probably can't even walk today for the amount of kicks and whacks and, and bumps he took yesterday. Hoiberg, as he always does, put in uh, lots of effort. So I think the good thing for, for Saints fans was that we could clearly see some passion and some fight out there, albeit the result didn't happen. Flip side of that is that it just reiterates, I think, the annoyance for lots of fans that Mark Hughes has been given so little time to try and turn things around. If this had been back in January and February, we might not be in the position we are in now. And that's probably going to be the thing that annoys fans um, you know, till the end of the season and through the summer. I mean, I don't want to bore uh, people who listen regularly, so all I can do is repeat what I've said before, because I think it's my assessment as it's, uh, at the moment, which is that there was a mistake made, clearly, when you when you think about it. It was either you, they had to back Pellegrino in January and stick with him, or they had to have made that change sooner to get somebody else in to give them time. And realistically, they did neither. And... Hughes has got no time to turn this around and, you know, it's looking like a pretty desperate situation now. And Pellegrino disappeared after all those um, winnable games had passed. Mm. And having brought in a £20 million striker uh, as the as the saviour, who is nowhere to be seen now. So, mm-hmm. yeah, if you want to talk about the manager, there is the pretty obvious error, really. Um, and like I said, I, I'm still having fully drawn my own conclusion as to whether... I understood the reasons why they were trying to stick with Pellegrino. What I couldn't understand is why that you sell a defender for £75 million before the window's even opened. And then when it's clear well, you know, he needs two, three really big players, you just don't deliver those for him, but you stick with him. And, uh, and then once, obviously, it doesn't work you get rid of it when the season's virtually done. I mean, it's, uh, it just, it does, um, I'm repeating myself, I know, so I'll, I'll shut up. Beggar's belief, yeah, no, absolutely. All right. Um, as, as for Wembley, then, moving on to, to Wembley, next game is the, the semi-final after the Leicester game, I should add, of uh, the FA Cup. For, for Saints, in terms of that match against Chelsea, Adam, do, do you feel that they'll, possibly turn up now with their, their tails between their legs and their, their heads down? Or do you think that maybe with the pressure of the Premier League not being there, being the underdog, those sorts of things, they can actually go out and almost play pressure-free? Yeah, I think they can. I, I really think they can. I, I've, you know, I haven't said it out loud for fear of, uh, fear of obviously looking like a complete idiot, even more so than normal. <laughs> but I've had a little suspicion, you know, that, that they might just get to the final for a little while. And um, obviously they have cruised through uh, some rounds as well and they've done well to get this far and I've still got this funny feeling you know what we I was talking about with somebody else the other day and uh, 
a couple of weeks ago after West Ham. And I said, you know, you look, the season is going to be probably decided by the time Saints leave Wembley. Um, mm. And there, I, I said, you know, if you if things go as you expect against Arsenal and Chelsea, I you would normally expect to win those games, and indeed they've lost. Then uh, and then Leicester isn't a win. I said, I said, going to Wembley, they'll almost be down. And yet, mm. the funny thing is, I can see them winning at Wembley. I could see them losing those three games and then winning at Wembley. Such is the way of Saints, and let's not forget, such was the way last season as well, uh, where they ended up in the League Cup final. Yeah, I mean, Chelsea are clearly going to be the favourites. There's no doubt about it. And on any normal day, you would expect Chelsea to win. But as as I've mentioned already, Saints have been at their best when they've been the underdogs and when the pressure has been off. After what's happened this season, and particularly um, against Chelsea, you know, this weekend, they are going to be massively the underdogs. Nobody's going to give them a hope. Um, uh, but they're going to be on a neutral ground. There should be a good atmosphere, etc., etc. And you know, I think that we saw, although Ch- you expect Chelsea to be more motivated than they were in that first uh, 70 minutes against Saints, you saw that Saints are capable of causing problems and are quite capable of frustrating them as well. Whilst you probably would expect Chelsea to win, I've got a funny feeling Saints might make a real game of it, mm. despite the fact that it goes against all logic. Though oddly. I'm less optimistic for Leicester, which I know is is just weird, but uh, that's just kind of my gut feeling. <laughs> and, and I guess whilst it hasn't necessarily produced the results, I think in terms of sort of the last couple of performances, Hughes seems to have fallen on this 5-4-1, if you want to call it that, that has at least meant that we've scored goals, and we've scored four goals in our last two games, which at least is something positive, albeit defensively we've still looked... Uh, a bit nervous, as we mentioned, but do you do you foresee him just sort of almost going with the same lineup that started yesterday and, and chucking them out there and, and uh, giving it another go, or, or changing things around a bit? Well, I mean, obviously there's two things. One is that they've got um, three games in a week here, so he obviously has yep. to look at, at fitness and freshness, but he made a very interesting comment after the game yesterday. He said, um, we were asking him about characters, about leadership, uh, and he said, now I feel like I've got sense of the ones who are in my group who I can rely on and the ones who aren't going to do it for me, who aren't going to throw their bodies in the way. And uh, I think that really when we see the teams and the squads for the next couple of games, it's going to be very telling as to who is and who is not in that in terms of the way that Hughes views them. I think he was pleased, um, though disappointed with the way it went. I think he was pleased with certain aspects of, what happened against Chelsea and the fact that some players did stand up and try and lead until that moment when, as I said, the, the, the mist came down, basically, and that, that lack of confidence was exposed. So I think there will be some tinkering, uh, mm. but I don't think there'll be major tinkering, really. Uh, he spoke before the Chelsea game in the in the pre-match uh, presser and said, look, you know, um, and when, when I was asking about Bednarek, his justification for kind of thinking he might play him, as well, as well as having been genuinely impressed by him in training, was actually we need a bit of consistency here. We don't need to keep changing things all the time. That's not going to help in a difficult situation. And therefore, it's difficult because is this working? Well, I mean, they've obviously lost two games. The last two games conceded three goals. But playing 4-4-2, they lost 3-0 to West Ham. So now they're not playing the bigger teams, aside from Wembley, until Man City. Do you now go back to a back four and try and be a bit more ambitious? I suspect he will try and make things as easy for the players as possible. And that means just having a simple, unchanged 
formation and game plan to stick to because I don't really see the benefit of making things more confusing for them at this stage. They need to just try and understand what they're doing. No, that makes perfect sense. Okay. And just finally on Wembley, so I wanted, I know we've not really spoken about it because there's been so many other things to talk about, but I just wanted to get your views, Adam, around Wembley ticket pricing, because I know it's something that's uh, sort of reared its head uh, a few times during this uh, process of the semi-finals being um, arranged and all those sort of things. Um, I mean, to my knowledge, and this is uh, obviously the Sunday before the cup final that we're recording, I think there's still quite a few tickets available for Wembley for Saints fans. And I, I appreciate that partly that will be down to the fact that uh, quite a few have become disillusioned by what's happened within the club this season. Um, you know, in terms of the ticket prices, I mean, there's category one tickets that are going right up to 80 quid for adults, 70 quid for concessions. And concessions are over 65, 18 to 21s and under 18. So I was thinking about it, you know, if, if you're a family of four, for example, a mum, a dad, a 10-year-old, a six-year-old, I mean, that's 300 quid if you want category one tickets before any travel, any food, any uh, drink, those sort of things. So looking at prices for Wembley, you know, I guess the view generally is that they are way, way, way overpriced. So how much do you think that has put Saints fans off as opposed to the way we're playing? Because I guess normally when we've been to Wembley, Tickets have been snapped up like hotcakes, but this season's been very, very different. And I, I certainly feel pricing has a, a fair part to play in that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's probably a mixture of the two, isn't it? There's a certain amount of disillusionment. Of course there is. There's also a lot of games and it's an expensive season if you want to go and watch Saints uh, wherever they are. Um, and yeah, the ticket prices do seem to me to be high and, and expensive. And can you justify spending that by the time you add on your travel and, and everything else? But Obviously, I, I suspect that you're probably in a better position to, to answer that than I am. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Um, uh, yeah, sorry, throw that back yeah. to you. <laughs> <laughs> There's a grenade. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's just, you know, it's, e it's easy to suggest that it's just down to the fact that, you know, plastic fans and they only go when we're winning, you, you know, the song about you only sing when you're winning and all that sort of thing. But I think it's totally understandable. And I, to my knowledge, again, I think even the, the other clubs, the, the big three have had problems selling out their allocation because I think fans do understand that pricing for football matches in this modern era is very expensive. I guess the issue is it's a bit like players' wages. I mean, when is it ever going to hit a peak and start coming down? When are ticket prices ever going to get to that point where someone suddenly goes, crikey, that's far too much. Let's start at, uh, you know, charging X for tickets. You look at the Huddersfield chairman, for example. I know he, uh, he's he been a bit of a beacon in terms of that because I know earlier in, in sort of February time, they announced that season tickets next year for all their current season tickets anywhere in the ground would be £249 for an adult, which is fantastic. And that was obviously dependent on whatever division they were in Premier League or the Championship but as I say I think for Saints fans you know it's easy to say oh you're not going because they're not winning but I genuinely feel unless we start seeing empty stadiums to a certain extent the likes of Wembley they can pretty much charge what they want because they know people will turn up as long as that happens that means prices are never going to come down Right, let's end with a, a prediction then, Adam. I, I, as I said last week, I don't really know why we bother anymore, but uh, it's, it's, it's always a good way to end the section. So uh, we'll start with you, prediction. Come on. For Wembley. Yeah, you said you think they're going to win, so I'm looking for something positive. <laughs> yeah, right? OK, 2-1 Saints. 2-1 Saints, excellent. All right. Um, as per normal, I've gone 3-1 Chelsea. Oh, oh another, another classic day in the making. I'm going to bubble wrap the laptop. <laughs> Thank you. 
Now, before we move on, we're going to speak to Gary Hayes. Gary is a Chelsea fan, producer of The Blueprint, which is an independent documentary about modern Chelsea through the eyes of players and fans. And he's also a member of the Chelsea podcast. Gary, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. I, I, I wondered if we could sort of start off by having a, a chat about Chelsea this season. Obviously, you were deserved Premier League champions last year. It hasn't quite worked out this season. So what have you and sort of Chelsea fans made of this season so far? Yeah, I think a big part of it's been disappointment, but I think... When fans look beyond maybe results, they might see something a bit different, which I guess isn't the, it's probably the boring narrative because everyone wants to read about crises and, <laughs> and drama. But I think it's been a sobering season, you know, on the back of everything that's gone on. But I think that Chelsea aren't as bad as the press like to make out. I've yeah. been a part of that side of it, reporting on the club, you know, for 15 years, which I'm not doing so much now. But you know, I don't like the, the narrative that the press has been driving, but mm. at the same time, you can sort of see it. But I think the instant reaction now that you get across social media and you know ev- everywhere else is that they want instant results. And one minute you're great, the next minute you're you're poor. And I think that's been the, the summer of Chelsea season, and that because they were champions, people expected expected a lot more from them. But I think that they bought well this this season, which again isn't a popular view that. I think if they just sprinkle some stardust next summer, I think you're going to see a completely different team. Yeah, yeah. And is it? Is it I mean, you obviously mentioned there's a few factors there. So you know, one of the questions I had and was was around sort of player consistency. Because I mean, as you say, you're a, you're a squad full of stars. Um, you, you know, you look at players like maybe Hazard and people like that that have sort of dipped in and out of the season. I mean, he was obviously good against uh, Saints this weekend, just gone. But is it is it been sort of one of the frustrations being maybe the sort of consistency of some of your top players? Yeah, I think so. I think um, you know Hazard especially is that anyone who knows me and hears me, you know, yabber on about it a lot is that I, I think the issue with him is that when Chelsea signed him in 2012, that was the the squad before that, the team before that of Drogba, Terry Lampard. It sort of come to its natural conclusion by winning the Champions League, and Hazard was the the new era, if you like, yeah. and he sort of hasn't become a better player than he was in 2012 don't get me wrong he's still a very very talented player Yeah. but then you look at others around him of that age that have gone on it's sort of like a Ronaldo Rooney comparison you look at when United had those those two and they were you know, very similar age and, and Rooney was the big English star and Ronaldo came in from um, Sporting and now you look at them and it's sort of a bit like De Bruyne and, and Hazard you know mm-hmm. Hazard was the, the big young thing everyone knew about because of what he was doing with Lille and then you know, De Bruyne has had to do it the hard way, I guess, by you know, jumping around from clubs in Germany where Chelsea didn't really have a lot of faith in him and, yep. and they didn't have that faith because he was competing with Hazard. And now you look at him, they're, they're two completely different players and De Bruyne is, is the better player now, I guess, But even though they're playing in different positions. But I think that, that's the problem with Chelsea is that they've, they've had an experiment going on for the, the last five or six years where they've tried to change the culture of the club, the style of the football they play. And it's, you know, it's, it's not to... You know, people like to point fingers too much, I think, and and say that everyone's wrong for what they've done. But you know, I think they've they've tried to be bold in the fact that they wanted to create a more so-called entertaining brand of football yeah. rather than the winning football they played. And maybe they got a bit embarrassed about the way they won trophies, which I, as a Chelsea fan, was never embarrassed about. I like the fact that they were a side that sort of bucked the trend and that you know they, they, they've got this sugar daddy owner in in Roman Abramovich and. And with, with that, everyone expected this Galacticos you know, mm. culture to come with the club. But it, the success wasn't based around that. It was based around this this mix of style and substance where they were buying you know, the likes of Drogba that people forget. Drogba in 2012, when they signed him in 2004, 
he was a player that not many people knew about. He was a player that people weren't expecting Chelsea to sign, and that's where the success always was. Now they've sort of tried to sign star players. It sort of backfired, and they tried to build everything around Hazard, and it hasn't really worked out. Even like I say to uh, you know, go to the point again that he is, he is a, a very good player, but he does it against the smaller sides and no disrespect to Southampton yep, but yep. the way he played on Saturday isn't the way he's played against Man City Man United Arsenal Spurs this season in Liverpool you know mm. in the league against the top six he's got one goal this season that yeah. was a penalty yeah. against Arsenal at the Emirates so I think that just sums up his season but the problem is with Chelsea is that he is the one player to do it they've got no one else and that's what I mean about if they sprinkle a bit more stardust on this side and they take the, the ease the burden on Hazard and they've got a few more players that you know, capable of doing what he can, then maybe you'll see a different team next year. Start of 2018, you're still in the Champions League, you're in the FA Cup at that stage, you've uh, got a League Cup semi-final to look forward to as well. We get to this stage of the season, now it's really only the FA Cup left to play for. So do you think if Chelsea can win the FA Cup, it, it would still be deemed a positive season? Or do you think some fans are going to be pretty disappointed, whatever happens? And again, without being too partisan, but if Chelsea start you know, finishing fifth and saying they've had a good season because they won the FA Cup, they're starting to become Arsenal. <laughs> and and I, I, well, I, I say that just because, you know, I'm not trying to have a pop at Arsenal deliberately, but I think you look at what Arsenal have done and the demise of that club, you know, we talk about City perhaps being the best team the Premier League's ever seen. Well, I think that's a, a massive overreaction because it's, it's current, but I think, you know, in my eyes, the best team the Premier League's ever seen is a team that went unbeaten in... Yeah. In 2003, the Invincibles, you know, yeah, 2003, yeah. four, they were absolutely incredible. And, and when you go a season unbeaten, it shows you are the best, you know. But to see what Arsenal have done since then, you know, it's heartbreaking if you're an Arsenal fan because you knew what the club was. And I understand why that's happened because of, you know, the way they've tried to run the, the club as a business at a time when that's sort of gone out the window. They've, you know, they've invested heavily in their stadium. But, you know, to start saying that FA Cups and top four finishes are worth celebrating... I think that's where you know clubs start to to slip down, and I think gradually it's happened with Arsenal in the way that you know you see where you know teams like Sunderland have always been on the brink of getting relegated, but they somehow stay up, and yeah. Arsenal always on the brink of just missing out on the top four, but they were getting it, and now yep. suddenly they're not getting it, and they're they're falling further and further behind. And you see today the fact that um, you know they uh, they lose to Newcastle and. It's not very pretty there, regardless of what's going on in the Europa League. So I think, you know, to take it back to Chelsea, that if Chelsea fans and the club are happy with finishing fifth or sixth this year and getting in the FA Cup final and winning it, then that's a very bad sign. But at the moment, the the players are talking the right language, where, you know, Cahill's saying it, Aspetaqueta and a few others have said that winning the FA Cup isn't going isn't to save their, their season. I think that's the right attitude to have because Chelsea have been the most successful club in English football since 2003. And, if they're starting to say that seasons outside of the Champions League and winning one bit of silver regardless is success, then I think um, they need to you know, take a hard look at themselves. Looking ahead to next weekend at Wembley, then I mean, obviously for Saints, it's a very big game as as, as well being documented. I mean, we've had a, a dreadful season. We're pretty much relegated now. By the time we get to, to Wembley, if we lose at Leicester on Thursday, that could well be the case that we're pretty much the final nail in the coffin. So I think, you know, we're looking at the cup run now as a bit of a, we, we can sort of play without the pressure of the Premier League. You know, there's nothing to lose with the, the underdogs. All the pressure will be on Chelsea. So do you think that makes it harder for you guys? Because everyone will expect you to win? Yeah, probably. And I think that, you know, Conte did something he hasn't done a lot this year. And I'm a big fan of his, but you know, I'm not so blind to say that I'm a fan of his, therefore we can do no wrong. And what frustrates me at times is that, which is what you speak to any Chelsea fan, they all say the same thing about 
the late substitutions and and on Saturday, I was so surprised that the second goal goes in and he immediately changes it with Pedro and Giroud coming on and, and that changed the game. But I yeah. think that for that first hour, Southampton showed, you know, where the weaknesses are in this Chelsea side and what can happen if you if you start prodding them. And I think that, you know, especially with you guys having nothing to lose, you know, that it, it can be a totally different game. And that's the beauty of the FA Cup, isn't it? It's, it's cup football. It's yeah. like Liverpool and Manchester City in the... Champions League recently Liverpool could go out for the first half an hour in the first leg and go gung-ho because they're not worried about points they're not worried about goal differences and and everything else they they wanted to go out and get a lead and then stick to it and that's the way you play cup games and maybe on on Saturday when you guys were tuning up you could start seeing the not so much the panic setting but you know the the team started sitting that little bit deeper because they're thinking we've got something to hold on to here we got we need these three points and in the cup when you've got nothing to lose it's you know any side is a dangerous beast to be coming up against in that scenario i think i know you guys got quite a tough game on the thursday night away to burnley as well i know it's very generous to saints to say that they would uh, play their game on the thursday because i think the premier league had said something about fairness which uh, we we had to have a giggle about uh, rm because i think we played three games in six days over christmas the year before last but there we go um, it's good that everyone's being fair now anyway but uh, i mean how, how do you see the game going at wembley in in terms of yesterday i mean i guess that that sort of builds some good momentum for you you, you know saints are obviously going to rock up knowing what's just happened uh, this weekend gone against you guys so i guess that will obviously help in terms of chelsea probably feeling they're, they're one step ahead already going into the fixture yeah you know, regardless of what happened at the weekend chelsea would have probably been thinking that because they are chelsea and you know they're, they're the reigning champions for the time being but i just think that yeah, with with Shane Long, the way Chelsea don't like players with a bit of pace and nippy getting in behind them, and you yeah. saw the problems he caused yesterday. And um, you know, there was that moment where he he turned, you know, he, he got the better of uh, Christensen and Cahill, and it was a shot that deflected off his yeah, legs, that sort of yeah. almost beat Courtois. And if if they can play to those strengths, then I think they can get something out of the game, especially at, at Wembley, where you got that deeper pitch the wider pitch um, you know that back three at Chelsea is going to be stretched a bit more you know that, that, that's not to say that you know Chelsea haven't got their own strengths of course they have but I just think looking at Chelsea the way that Southampton can get at them I think you know he, he maybe gets a hard rap on things but I think overall Mark Hughes is a competent manager he's not a manager that's going to win Champions Leagues and league titles but I think he's certainly better than what Southampton have had earlier on this season absolutely and, is, think, yeah. Yeah, and you, you saw a bit of it yesterday and you know Maybe if if confidence was a a bit higher and that he'd been there a bit earlier, you, they, they probably would have gone on to win that game. But yeah. I think that they they've shown at at St Mary's yesterday what they can do to Chelsea in terms of just you know spotting those those weaknesses in the side. And you know is is Marco Alonso going to be going to be banned for that game? He probably should be after yep. you know that that tackle on on Long. So you're looking at a, well, he's not so much a rookie, but it'd be Emerson Palmieri filling in for him, and he he hasn't even started. Um, he started once for Chelsea in the league in the FA Cup against Hull, right. and he's only had like ten minutes here and there, and you know no, no one's really quite sure how good he is or you know whether he's fit enough. That, that's, that is a problem with Chelsea actually. I keep signing players that are injured. Yeah. You know, last summer it was um, Bakayoko, Drinkwater, and Morata all injured when they signed them, and then in in January signing Barkley who's injured, um, mm. Palmieri who's injured. So we're not quite sure what Palmieri can offer right now. So. That could be another thing to really to get at Chelsea. You know the fact that they've got this; they'll have a left wing back playing who's not used to the system and, and English football. So I don't, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't write this game off. Um, that's me being a pessimist as a Chelsea <laughs> fan. But I think looking at it as well, I wouldn't write it off because it is cup football and upsets happen for a reason. And 
Southampton fans, you know, they've got to look at what they did in the 70s and, um, you know, with Peter Osgood on that side to see that anything can happen at Wembley. Absolutely, no, totally. Look, one, one final question just on uh, on Wembley. I, I asked this to Adam earlier in the podcast, Gary, but interested to get your view from a, a Chelsea point of view. Um, ticket sales for Saints fans, unsurprisingly, maybe have, have been particularly slow. I mean, there's still quite a few available for next weekend. I think, as Adam and I were discussing earlier, it's partly down to a little bit of disillusionment. But I was interested to get your view of sort of ticket sales from the Chelsea point of view because I think it's been quite an eye-opener for, for Saints fans the amount of uh, money that the Wembley Stadium and the FA are asking for for this fixture I think there's ticket prices going up to sort of 80 quid for adults for uh, um, category one so I, I was interested because I know there's a lot of chat around football prices at the moment and um, you, you know any any team in the Premier League is, is suffering with ticket costs uh, for home and away games so I was just keen to get your view really on what you think of the Wembley ticket price and whether you think it's fair for the modern era or whether you know punters are getting a hard time and you can understand why Wembley may not be for either end next week yeah I, f- I think it's a shame because um, you know full disclosure I haven't been buying football tickets for 15 years because I've been a journalist in that time going to matches and getting my prawn sandwiches but um, <laughs> I think you know there's, there's a lot of people I know that I'm, I'm friends with I'm fans and you know since Christmas when I haven't um, been going to matches so much I've been going to away games more and you know you get that £30 deal which, which is great but I look and I just think that you know if clubs can offer you know, at, at Chelsea, I think it's £25 for the um, cup games. If they yeah. can offer that, then the FA can offer it for the semis because these are fans that, you know, the, the people that go to these matches are the season tick holders that turn up every week to follow their clubs. There'll be a lot of them that go away as well. And when their team gets to Wembley, everyone says about celebrating your team, getting to Wembley and get behind them. But mm. why has it got to come at such a steep cost? Yep. You know, there's a lot of money in football that isn't based on... Um, on ticket prices and I'm not saying that just because broadcasters pay a premium that fans therefore should be you know get given a discount you know that it should be subsidised but I think you look at it if, if Chelsea can charge £25 for FA Cup from January through to to um, April when they're no longer playing at home then the FA can do it in a stadium that's holding 90,000 people yeah. you know there's there's no interest in the FA Cup at, you know to the level that it used to be it's a competition that's competing with you know um, the, the Champions League, the Europa League, and you know this year in a World Cup year, obviously yeah. there's this focus elsewhere that maybe the FA Cup has lost its sparkle. And the one way to give it it back is get the fans, but you know get the fans involved, stop treating them like mushrooms, and um, you know get get fans back involved in football because it is becoming more and more of a corporate game. I, I, you know, again, I admit I've been on the outside looking in at that as that's happened. It hasn't hurt me in the pocket particularly, so I can't really preach too much, but. You look at it and there's people I know that pay thousands of pounds to watch their team every year and you mm. think, you know, Southampton are getting to Wembley for the first time since, well, in the FA Cup, that when you lost the cup final, it was at, the, it was at Cardiff, wasn't it, against yeah, Arsenal? Yeah, that's right, 2003, yeah, so you're right. Yep. it's your first opportunity in, in the FA Cup, which is meant to be the competition in English football, it's meant to be the romance of it and and they're pricing fans out of it. You mm. know, I just think that's disappointing. Mm. And you know, even, even in the um, in the League Cup, you guys have been paying, you know, sh- silly prices there, so... I think you know it's a cash cow, and they, they, they the problem is they don't admit it's a cash cow, but it is, and then they'll come out with their initiatives on what they're trying to do to change it. But really, it's just all about the pound signs and the balance sheets, and Pain, and they just the keep yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. exactly, and they just keep charging fans. But you're looking as well, and you think you're paying for a stadium that Spurs have played 24, 25 games in this year. Yeah, yeah. You're renting that stadium out to the NFL for two games a year. Yeah. You know that, that stadium is making money. Yeah, you got your you know, England that, that, internationals. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So. You know, it's, it's not as if it's just a 
you know, white elephant sat there waiting for FA Cup matches. So mm. if they want Wembley to be a success and they want fans to go there and enjoy the experience, they shouldn't be charging ten pound a programme and. And God knows how much for a ticket. Totally agree, Gary. No, excellent. All right. Well, we uh, we have a, a habit of doing ill-fated predictions in this podcast. So I'm hoping that you'll you'll be able to come up with an ill-fated prediction as well, just to uh, to finish this bit. So um, I just wondered if you could give us a prediction on what you think the score in the semi-final will be, Gary. <laughs> well, the, the problem is, is Chelsea are so unpredictable <laughs> themselves, you know. Um, so you know they'll, they'll be great one minute, and then you know they'll be poor the next. Where you know this year that. They out, in my view, they outplayed Barcelona across two ties and could only score once against them, and they look that great. And then they turn up and they'll lose to, or they'll draw to Dross like West Ham. And you know, so and even after last week, I reckon it could be a negative for Chelsea in the fact they came back like that. So yeah. I think if he plays Giroud, then Chelsea will win. If he if he plays Morata, then I think it's going to be a tougher game, and Southampton might get something out of it. Good. All right. Well, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see. But look, really appreciate you um, joining the podcast. And obviously, after next weekend, we wish Chelsea all the best for the rest of the season. All right. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Before we finish up this week, I just wanted to cover off a, a couple of other things briefly with you, Adam, that had uh, come up within the, the Saints world this week. Starting with Matty Target, who is, of course, on loan at Fulham and doing very well by uh, all accounts. He was quoted as saying this week in the Echo that he'd had zero contact from Saints since being on loan at Craven Cottage. I, I guess I was going to ask your point of view of being in and around the club the last few years about whether that was normal, that clubs would sort of just keep in touch with their, their player when they're out on loan, get a, a view of how things are going, any injuries, those sort of things, and uh, I guess generally sort of look at how they can um, strengthen their performance to come back to a club and then make first team appearances or whether it sort of just epitomises that, that Saints have lost touch generally and you know almost rudderless in terms of the approach that they're taking to fans and players it's a very difficult it's, these are like slightly uh, delicate situations when a player goes out on loan to a certain extent because Saints uh, have kind of not really used the loan system so much with younger players. Um, not as much as I think they probably should have done, personally, uh, in recent years. But when they send a player on loan, they, they think very carefully about uh, where that player's going, which club they're going to, who the manager is, what the style of football is, what position they're in, and, and things like that, to try and get the right fit. The difficulty is, and we've we've seen it before, is if you send a player on loan and then you are seen to be, you know, interfering. Because when you loan a uh, player to a club, yes, that other club don't own the player, but you're giving them temporary ownership of that player. And therefore, it's for them to manage the player in all aspects. And it's not really for you to get involved in the same way as you wouldn't really want, if Saints took a player on loan, you really wouldn't want the parent club interfering every two minutes about that. So it's a difficult balance to be met. So... I was surprised that they hadn't. The Matt Target said there hadn't been any contact. That did seem a little bit odd. But and he obviously uh, seemed surprised about that as well. From the way yeah. I think he said, I think he said something like, "Believe it or not, I've not heard from them." So again, I don't know if it would be the norm to expect it. I mean, you think about what 18 months ago, Calvin Davis, part of his role was going to be to keep in touch with all the lone players and those sort of things. But again, he's obviously been promoted up to the first team coaching side. And it, it almost feels like that part of that role has just not gone anywhere else. And as I say, he certainly seemed surprised by it, didn't he? Well, he did sound surprised by it. So therefore, I think it probably is is unusual. But I, I wouldn't have thought that Saints were ever going to be in a lot of contact, if that makes sense. I think that they would, Matt Target as well, He's not a 17-year-old 
a 16, 17-year-old player who's never played, who's just going out for some experience at a lower league club. He's a, you know, he's a Premier League footballer. He's played a lot of Premier League football. He's played a lot of England youth football. And he's a man. And he's got he's gone out on loan. So I don't think really that there's uh, there's that big an issue with it. I, I, like I said, I think it's surprising that nobody's been in contact with him. But to be completely honest, I wouldn't have thought that they would have been in that much contact with him. I mean, he's, you know... He's, he's with a good club. He's doing well. You know, from Saints' point of view, everybody's a winner at the moment. They've probably got a loan fee uh, for him. They're getting him some games when he when he otherwise wouldn't be playing because he'd be behind Bertrand in the pecking order. Fulham are winning because they've got a player who's obviously doing really well. And Target's winning as well because obviously literally Fulham are winning. And um, there's already talk if they go up about him potentially getting a, a move, which he might mm. like as well. So, yeah. Yeah. you know... I. I, 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 I was surprised. Hill. Yes and no. I was surprised. I am surprised. And it does potentially speak to a wider void um, in the football operations department at Saints, which I think is just possibly uh, undermanned, to be completely honest with you, which is very rare. You can say that about many departments at Southampton Football Club, but I think perhaps it is. So perhaps it speaks of that a little bit. But I, overall, I, I yeah, I, I don't think you'd expect a lot of contact. And uh I don't think Fulham would appreciate too much either. Moving on then, as we mentioned, Leicester come up before the Chelsea game at Wembley later on in the week on Thursday. I don't think either of us necessarily have the uh, the time or energy today to break that game down piece by piece. But in summary, Adam, last chance saloon, make or break, dare I say, must win? I knew you'd say must win. <laughs> and in actual fact... It is, isn't it? it, is. well, we know it is. I, I saw Peachy yesterday, Simon, <laughs> our friend Simon Peach who was uh, hobnobbing with the hoi polloi in the prawn sandwich brigade <laughs> at St Mary's yesterday, would you believe? He was making a right song and dance about his flyby flight being late Friday on social media. Oh, uh, was he? Yeah, yeah, oh, obviously. What a, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, man. Anyway, I saw him yesterday and, and he made the point to me, even you're going to have to say it's a must-win game soon. <laughs> and I was just said, never. <laughs> it will never happen. Um, but, it is, uh, uh, No. Um, in no, because the yeah, the worst it that is. can happen is they're going to. Everyone, it everyone listening knows it is. No, they could lose <laughs> all the games this season; they'll get relegated. But that doesn't make doesn't make any of them must win. <laughs> I, I, think you've, I think you've confused yourself on this now. No, 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 no. I'm I'm, I'm adamant. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I I do think it's last chance saloon though, really, because I, I, I the only glimmer of hope that the Saints could get themselves really at this stage you feel is that they're going to have to beat Leicester and Bournemouth back to back um, now they're going to need more wins after that but I think at least if they did that A there would be some belief and a bit of confidence might suddenly start to uh, appear and emerge but also my suspicion is that would probably just about lift them out of the bottom three now obviously they're going to need more points from there to stay out of the bottom three but at the very least that would give them um, some sort of a a fighting chance without uh, six points from those games is very hard to see because even obviously four points is going to keep them in the bottom three, three points or less, and uh, that's just just not good enough now. So yeah, I, I think really they've got to beat Leicester because I don't think you can be if they if they lost to Leicester, I just don't think you can suddenly expect them to pick up the points they're going to need in those last games. I mean, all those results went against them. The only slightly surprising thing, uh, because I had all eyes on Huddersfield, really, because I've thought for a while it'll be two of Saints, Stoke and Huddersfield. 
But obviously Swansea have slightly faltered. The draw against West Brom and then the draw against Everton. Two games they might have expected to have got a bit more from, at least one of those games. Four points probably would have been a decent haul. But actually, they're the ones that are suddenly looking a bit more vulnerable. I think they've got Man City and Chelsea up next. Um, before they've actually got a decent running. They've got to play Bournemouth. Of course, they've got to play Saints. Mm. And uh, they've got to play Stoke. So they, I still think they'll probably be OK. But they've kind of opened the door to, to let themselves back into the fringes of this. So given that they've got those two uh, difficult games coming up, Saints need to make try and make the most of that and put some pressure onto, onto Swansea. And obviously, if they went out and lost at Leicester, then it's then Swansea can kind of almost cruise through those two games and be a bit philosophical if they lose them because they know that Saints aren't going to be that close. So I, I realistically, if they're going to stay up, they've got to beat Leicester and Bournemouth um, and, and then we'll, yeah, we'll take it from there, really. But I, I can't see less than, really less than two wins doing the job now. I don't know about you. No, no, I, I agree with everything you just said there. I, I agree Leicester is a must-win, absolutely. Um, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. <laughs> it seems ironic, doesn't it? I mean, you know, we spoke about Claude earlier in the season, but... Nearly a year on from letting him go, again, in terms of uh, a weird season, it does seem ironic that he could pretty much, mathematically it won't relegate us, obviously, but he could almost um, hammer that final nail into the coffin, really, couldn't he? Well, it's Claude and then Bournemouth. I mean, uh, yeah. the, two, the two games, really. I mean, the, the Claude, the, uh, the revenge script, and uh, <laughs> Bournemouth, the chance to be the big dogs on the south coast, really, for the first time. And uh, yeah, so you could, Claude's going to really want it, I'm sure. And um, Bournemouth and their fans are going to really want it as well, I'm sure. So um, two two games there that aren't going to be easy for Saints, but looking specifically at Leicester, obviously they're struggling at the moment. Um, they are having a tough time of it. And there's already a lot of talk in the, in the papers about Claude's position there. And has he lost a dressing room? It's all very eerily familiar. Mm. Um so, yeah, I mean, you'd say there's a chance because Leicester are in rotten form. But I, I suppose if you were Leicester, you would potentially think, well, what better opportunity to get a win? You've got struggling Saints uh, coming. You pounded them earlier in the season and you're at home uh, under lights. And we know the King Power uh, evening games, the atmosphere is normally pretty rip-roaring, whether it will be or not. Um, probably depends on how the game starts there. But, yeah, I mean, and they're still... When you look at their team, you still feel... Um, despite some wobbly form recently, that they've got they've got goals and and they're they're going to be a troublesome team to beat. I think yeah. they're a bit vulnerable at the back, but they've got those. You got Vardy, you got Mares, Okazaki, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're a difficult team to contain. Um, so it's going to be a hard night. I think I, I imagine that um, Saints are going to need to uh, score a couple of goals if they're going to win. I would think. Because they're going to be hard to keep Leicester out all night, I would I would suspect. I wanted to end this week's podcast, as I mentioned at the start, on a high. So what better way to do that than talk about uh, arguably Saints' most recent legend, Ricky Lambert. Ricky is to be awarded the Sir Tom Finney Award this weekend at the EFL Awards, do you? Being recognised for a career that took in all four divisions of England and international call-ups as well. Adam, Ricky Lambert, over 600 games, 200 goals for nine different clubs, including 106 goals in 207 games for us. Two league golden boots, the most goals by any Englishman in the top four divisions, I think, since 2000. He also scored three goals in 11 games for England as well, including that memorable header against Scotland. And least we forget, he worked in a beetroot factory, of course. But a bloke I know you know pretty well. So just sum up Ricky Lambert as a, as a player and a person. 
Well, uh, I'll start as a as a player, I suppose. Um, what can you what can you add to the stats in a way, because, and, and the legacy that he had at Saints because he was iconic. I think in my time uh, watching Southampton, which uh, goes back professionally sixteen years, but 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 before that as well. In my era of watching Saints, there are two icons really, and and the game is all about icons, and one is Matthew Letizia. And the other is Ricky Lambert, and yeah, they are the two iconic players, aren't they, uh, yeah. of of Southampton of that era? Um, you can wind back and pick out the others, your Mick Shannons and and so forth. But of of the last three decades of mm. Saints, really, those two have stood above all others for their uh, ability, obviously their goal scoring, their talent, but also their character, their personality, and other things that they brought to the party. And Ricky was a player when uh, Alan Pardew bought him. Uh, I remember when we spoke to Pards about uh, Ricky when he first joined. Pards was was uh, he was he was he obviously really liked him because he'd managed to convince them to spend a million pounds on him, which for uh, a League One club was a was an absolutely colossal signing. Yeah, um, yeah. It was a ridiculous amount of money to be spending in League One really on one player. And Pards was uh, interesting when he spoke about him because he sort of talked him up, but also criticised him a lot. And I think Pards had a really big impact. Well, Ricky said what a massive impact he had on his career. Um, because I think he was the one who really said to him when he came in the door, mate, you've got two choices. You're good enough. You can play in the Premier League. You can play for England, which is something I don't think anybody had ever said to him before. Mm. But it depends on you. How much do you want it? Because if you want it, it's there for you and we'll help you. And if you just want to stroll through this and just sort of knock in some goals, which is kind of the accusation of what he'd done during his career up to that point, then that's the path you can go down as well. And Ricky wanted to go down the path of making the most of his opportunities. And Pardew helped him massively with that. And the, the first thing really was getting him physically fit. As he admitted, really, for the first time in his career, he got physically fit. Yeah. And I think when he saw the, the gains that were made by that, he never he never lost the desire to stay in that type of shape. That obviously speaks a lot about him as uh, a person as well, which is somebody who was determined once he came to Saints to to make the best of himself. We talk about lack of leader, lack of characters now. Um, absolutely, he had all of that and more in abundance. Um, he was uh, a, a good guy to deal with. He would more often than not, even in the face of difficult times, he would be one of the guys who would come through the mix zone and front up to the press and explain what's going on. You know, even not just when he scored a hat trick, but when things went badly as well. And I always think that says a lot about a player uh, as well, that they're prepared to take that on the chin. And a good guy. And just one of those, I feel like he is one of the last players that played uh, for Saints, certainly successful players that played for Saints, that felt like he was a throwback to the old era of footballers. Yeah, the old hero. era. Yeah, and, you know, I I had quite a few conversations. His dad used to phone me up occasionally. And, you know, he would be... His dad would want me to send down some papers of particular cuttings of things that we'd written about Ricky or some photos that we'd gathered of, of Ricky. And, and, you know, we'd send... I'd have a chat with him. We'd send stuff to him. And his mum and dad still lived in the same house in Liverpool. They'd always lived in. And, you know, he was just proud of his son but a really nice you know normal guy as well like Ricky yeah. was and I, I, you wouldn't get that now I wouldn't expect 
Wesley Hoytstad to give me a phone call and ask for some cuttings about Wesley to be sent over or, you know, Manolo Gabbiadini's mum. It's a, it's a different era now. Yeah. And Ricky was felt like the last iconic uh, player who is almost, um, you know, kind of from that era, a man of the people, a man who obviously came up through not having everything. He didn't come through an academy uh, system and straight into a first team where you've always had everything on a plate like they do now. Uh, where you've always had money. And, um, yeah, I think it just it made a bit of a difference uh, in that respect. And also, I, I guess uh, add from a media point of view as well, I talked about the mix zone thing, but with them being lower down the ladder, there was a lot more access to the players from media when they were lower down the ladder. And so I think people got to know Ricky a lot better. And I think that's something that doesn't help uh, the case for Saints or the cause for Saints now is that a lot of these players are very, very seem very faceless. Yeah. And there might be some interesting guys and some interesting stories to tell. But because of the Premier League juggernaut as it is, we as the media collectively don't get to tell them, uh, tell those stories really to a wide audience. As whereas people got to know Ricky uh, because, you know, he was he would talk often. He would do he would do media and stuff like that. And they got to know a lot of the players of that era and in that team. And uh, and yeah. Uh, you know, I can't, I've only got nice things to say about Ricky, really, and and just it was it was a pity how how it kind of unravelled just at the end, really. I mean, I think he tried to uh, potentially move on before, and that hadn't uh, come to fruition. Uh, I think he had some frustrations, and then eventually he went to Liverpool, and yeah, all the you couldn't begrudge him his move stuff, but I still think uh, in a way it was it was a shame that his career uh, went from such a high at Saints to to frankly, just petering out after he left, which was a bit of a pity, really, because I think he still had a couple more good years in him. I was interested to see the previous winners. 2015 was Kevin Phillips. 2016 was Kevin Davis. Obviously, 2018, Ricky Lambert. So it's nice that there's another ex-Saint in there. And I think, as you say, Adam, very, very well-deserved, both as a, a player and a person. And uh, everyone here at TSP, which is basically Adam and me, wish him, uh, very <laughs> <laughs> wish him uh, m- many congratulations with the award. Thanks to all of you who are still listening to our podcast and have battled your way through this one to reach this point. Thanks also to Adam and Gary Hayes for joining this week's episode. I'd also quickly like to say thanks to Kerry from the Chelsea podcast who put Gary and I in touch. For those of you who are going to Wembley next week, enjoy it, and I hope you get some form of value for the money that we spoke about earlier. We'll be back again soon. Until then, keep marching. Oh, you know the rest. God bless Ricky Lambert. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with three for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. Beyond the pitch, beyond the results, we're here to connect fans, getting them to embrace the highs and lows of supporting your club because we're not just fans, we're a team. With two in three football fans having struggled with their mental health, we understand that life off the pitch can present its own challenges. That's why we're committed to ensuring you have the tools to stay connected with your friends and fellow supporters. Take a moment to connect with your mates. A simple text or an open conversation can make a world of difference. And if they don't respond right away, don't hesitate to follow up. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com.
This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.